Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. My name is Philip Terzian. I am the literary editor of the Weekly Standard in Washington, and this is my weekly podcast about the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. This week, we are looking at the November 16th issue of the Weekly Standard, which starts off with an essay by James Gardner, one of our resident art historians, who has visited the Picasso sculpture exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York. And um, uh, we all know Pablo Picasso, of course, but uh, when we think of Picasso, we almost invariably think of his paintings. And Picasso being the long-lived and prolific artist that he was, uh, those paintings, of course, as we know, went through many phases, from the Blue Period to the uh, evolving into Cubism and whatnot, and and all of which is um, <clears throat> very much a component of, of Picasso's massive and dominant reputation. But in fact, as uh, James Gardner makes clear, and as this show uh, demonstrates, um, Picasso was more than a, a painter. And in fact, um, he did sculpture um, simultaneously and all through his career. And his sculpture, and the, the argument that Gardner makes and which the show reveals is that Picasso's sculpture in the history of modern art is probably and very nearly as important as his painting in terms of influence that um, uh, we know that Picasso along with other modernists uh, um, is the one who really set the set the course uh, toward modernism uh, in the modern movement of the 20th century but this is equally applicable to his um, his figurative work and his sculpture. So it's an interesting piece, and um, I hope it might even prompt you, if you're in New York, to uh, see the show. That is followed by an essay by James Banner, who frequently writes on uh, writes on historical subjects, but also writes about uh, historiography, which is to say the history of history. And this is a book by a British historian called Jeremy Black, published by Indiana University Press, and it's entitled um, Clio's Battles, Historiography and Practice, Clio being the goddess of history. Um, And historiography is, as I say, the history of history, which is to say um, how history has been interpreted over time, um, how in the course of the last, uh, to give an example, the last three or four centuries, historians of different eras have dealt with um, certain issues, whether it be the, the, the Reformation or the rise and fall of the Roman Empire or whatever, um, uh, what we might call the received wisdom on these subjects evolves, it changes with time, it changes, it, the things go in and out of fashion. And it's, it's in many ways almost as interesting as, as the history itself. Um, and Black is a specialist in what we might call the history of history. Um, anyway, James Banner, uh, who's who's always a very lucid and insightful writer on on subjects like this, manages to make um, the the study of 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 the writing of history um, a fascinating topic in itself. David Yezzy, who uh, teaches at Johns Hopkins and is a, a distinguished poet. Um, has reviewed a new book of poetry by the American poet Daniel Brown entitled What More? And um, Moore is, um, uh, excuse me, uh, Brown is uh, 
what we might call a, a formalist, which is to say his poetry is is much closer to uh, classic or traditional forms of of meter and verse than than others. Um, and his poetry um, has a kind of uh, consistent thread of meaning uh, weaving through it, which David uh, describes and analyzes uh, in a, a quite interesting way. Um, Daniel Brown is a poet who's, I, I confess, uh, I, 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 until this time I knew his name, but as is always um, the case, it's always a compliment to a, a, a reviewer when you're actually prompted to go further and investigate Daniel Brown's poetry. But first, read David Yezzi's essay. That is followed by a review by Anthony Paletta, an occasional uh, contributor to our pages, of a book entitled Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary in World War I, um, between 20, 2014 and 2018. We are, of course, observing the centennial of the Great War, and um, inevitably, at least here in America, there's been considerable uh, emphasis on the Western Front and on American participation of the war. Of course, the centennial of that won't come till 2017, but the war between uh, uh, um, the West or the Allies and the central, so-called Central Powers, of course, broke out in August 1914, and we've been reassessing that. The historiographers have been uh, fast at work, but this book is interesting because it takes the um, uh, it takes the other side, it takes the the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, um, takes a close look at at their war, and of course th- they Germany and Austria-Hungary, being these so-called central powers, were were situated in between um, France and Britain in the west and Russia in the east. Um, so it was a uh, like the Second World War after 1941. It was a it was a two front war for two um, um, very different and very discrete discrete spelled E T E empires um, Germany and Austria Hungary which um, very different in their way uh, united um, fundamentally of course by both uh, speaking the German. Language, although of course Austria-Hungary was one of the great hybrid empires of history, where uh, it actually encompassed—I don't know whether uh, German speakers outnumbered other people in in the empire. Probably didn't, because it involved it, it included um, Czechoslovakia and Hungary and um, uh, the Balkans and so on, where people didn't speak German. But in any case, uh, Austria-Hungary and Germany were. Um, Allied in the war, and this is the this is the Great War. This is World War One from their uh, point of view, not necessarily rationalizing what they do, but but why they why they did what they did, why they fought as they did, what their objectives were, and how in the course of the of World War One, um, how uh, the fortunes of all of those countries of the Central Powers um, evolved over time. Ultimately, ending, of course, in the collapse of of Germany and the and the um, uh, abdication of the Kaiser, and as well in in Austria-Hungary, the collapse of the empire and the abdication of the of the Austro-Hungarian emperor. So it's it's a lot of a lot of history. The precursor to the modern political world that we know nicely laid out in this piece. That is followed by a piece by uh, Dominic Green. Um, uh, 
British writer, uh, and what he has done, he on my behalf, he attended um, the London uh, production of Hamlet, starring the um, British movie star Benedict Cumberpatch. Cumberpatch, and um, um, as it happens, Dominic Green likes uh, Benedict Cumberpatch's uh, performance and explains why. But the point of the piece is that he puts it in a little larger perspective. Um, Hamlet, of course, is probably Shakespeare's best-known part, um, uh, probably the most familiar of his plays to the general public. And as a consequence, Prince Hamlet himself has been played by any number of of famous um, actors over time, from John Barrymore to Alec Guinness to Richard Burton to... um, uh, 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 more modern players, um, such as Benedict Cumberpatch, and of course, like all, as is always the case, these even though they're dealing with a play that was written in the early sixteenth, uh, seventeenth uh, century, and uh, dealing with a specific point in time in Danish history where Prince Hamlet is is operating. Nevertheless, each production over time and in each generation very much reflects the times in which the play was put on, and uh, Benedict Cumberpatch's performance is uh, no different. To some degree, that's uh, the function of the director of the play, but but it's an interesting... Uh, you can always see how the world is reflected um, in the way plays like Hamlet are produced. The different, I mean, a, a production of Hamlet in 1930 on the London stage or 1915, if you will, on the London stage, is going to be very different and for many interesting reasons than a production in 2015. Um, The one constant uh, uh, thread, I suppose, is that it often, the the part of Hamlet often attracts well-known actors like Mr. Cumberbatch. So it's an interesting and amusing piece. And we end with an essay by Colin Fleming on E.F. Benson, who is a now- almost totally forgotten British writer, um, but uh, he was the son of uh, um, late Victorian Archbishop of Canterbury. He himself lived from 1867 to 1940, which is to say he grew up in the Victorian world but lived until the uh, beginning of World War II and was a very much a, 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 a hack in the best sense of the word. He was a writer, a very versatile writer, not a great literary artist, but um, churned out books on a variety of subjects. And what he excelled in, in Colin Fleming's uh, opinion, is the ghost story, not a specimen of high literature. But as, as Fleming points out, a number of great writers have dealt from Dickens to Henry James to Saki and Hawthorne and Ambrose Bierce and others, uh, a number of literary artists have written ghost stories. And Colin Fleming thinks, however, that that the master of the genre is no less than E.F. Benson, uh, and um, in particular a collection that he uh, he um, uh, published early in the 20th century entitled The Room and the Tower. It was a series of ghost stories. So if you have a taste for ghost stories and if you have a taste for discovering writers who, who deserve to be rediscovered, you might want to look at Colin Fleming's piece on E.F. Benson. And that is the Books and Arts section for the November 16th issue of the Weekly Standard. I, as always, I thank you very much for taking this time 
to listen to me, and I look very much forward to telling you about next week's issue. <laughs>